uh, year-long study through the whole Bible. We're telling the one big story. Uh, actually, this and next week are our last uh, sermons in the Old Testament. So we are about to wrap up uh, like two-thirds of the Bible and then spend the rest of the year focused on, focusing on about 60 years um, of the New Testament. So uh, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah today. We're not going to start there um, because in the beginning, <laughs> when God created the world, uh, he creates everything in it. He creates us and he creates us in, in perfect relationship with him and he sets us up and gives us a special purpose and plan. And let's look at that. It's in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. My mic is a little bit hot, Chandler. Uh, there we go. Okay, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing um, that moves on the earth. Now, men and women much smarter than me call what just happened here uh, there's a lot going on here, and we're not going to talk about all of it, but they call it this, the cultural mandate. And the cultural mandate is this. Um, God created humanity, and he made us in his image, so we look like him, and he gives us a purpose, right? What was the, what was the two main purposes that we see? Number one was multiply, fill the earth. Uh, multiply and fill the earth with what? People, right? And who are the people in the image of? In the image of God, right? So he's saying, multiply and fill the earth with my image. But then he also says something else. He says, I want you to subdue the earth. Uh, this word uh, subdue is, it literally means to like, to take over like enemy territory, David. Right? Like an army would subdue enemy territory. And when they take over, the idea is then that territory becomes part of our kingdom, right? We, we own that now. So what do kings do when they take over territory? They build statues of who? Themselves, right? So that when people look around in this enemy territory that's now theirs, they look around and go, oh, there's Saddam Hussein. This is his territory. Or there's so-and-so. This is his territory, right? And this is the same thing that God does when he says, subdue the earth and fill it. What does he do? He puts little statues of himself there, right? Us. We're created in the image of God. And so that when people look around, they go, whose territory is this? And they say, whose image is there? It's us. Right? This idea of subdue and have dominion, it's more than that, though. It's also what I'm calling bringing order to the chaos. So God creates them in the garden, right? And the garden was perfect and beautiful and ordered and fruitful, and it was perfect. But the rest of the world was not like that. It was it was wild. It was chaos. And he's saying, subdue the earth. Take what's here in the garden and fill the earth with that. Bring order to the chaos that exists in the world. That's the two commands that God gives Adam and Eve. Yes, they're supposed to have children. So there's this command, be fruitful, have babies, produce more and more of the image of God. But he's also saying, bring some order to the chaos that's in 
the world. This is the cultural mandate. Um, now, all of this was given to them before sin ever entered the world. <laughs> this was true before sin ever broke things even more and created more chaos. But this is what humanity was supposed to be about. All to the glory of God, but multiplying and bringing order to the chaos. Um, there are other instances in the scripture where this is found. We, we actually kind of skipped over one uh, recently in Jeremiah. So if you flip to Jeremiah chapter 29, you can see this one. Jeremiah 29. And 29.11 is one of the most famous verses and maybe in the all of the New Testament. Fred preached yesterday here at a funeral. And uh, Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper, plans to give you a future and a hope, right? And we love to put that on a coffee cup and we love to just claim that. But let's look, let's start back in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29.4 and see some of the context for this. Verse 4 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the cultural mandate. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Does this not strike anybody as funny? He's sending them into exile. They're going away as slaves, and he says, what, what should you do there? Multiply? Don't, don't get smaller, but grow. And then also, seek the welfare of Babylon. Babylon's their enemy, right? He's saying, go and, and make Babylon a better place. Go and make... Uh, Bring some order to the chaos that is this kingdom of Babylon. He's saying build houses, plant gardens, right? Bring some order to this chaos. Skip to verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and I hope then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So this cultural mandate was given not just to the people in the garden, Adam and Eve, but it was given to the Israelites when they're headed into exile, when they are really in the worst place they've ever been. Right, this, this idea, uh, their, their purpose on this earth and in exile was to do two things, to multiply, to, to grow, to make more and more of the image of God, and then to bring some order to the chaos. Multiply obviously means, it says it, have, take wives, have kids, marry your kids, have them have kids. Multiply, grow, so that, that the kingdom of God is expanding, not the kingdom of Babylon. But he also says to bring some order to this chaos that is their land. He says that we should, or they should, build houses. They should plant gardens. They should seek the welfare of Babylon. They should seek the good of their enemy. Who does that sound like? Jesus, right? He said you should pray to the Lord on its behalf, Babylon, your enemy. So, so the point is this that I'm trying to make. Wherever God has planted us, whether it's in the garden where it's perfect, 
or whether we're in the worst place we could imagine, God has given us the same purpose to do two things, to multiply and to bring some order to the chaos, to seek the welfare of the city that God has put us in. Someone much smarter than me, Nancy Piercy, says it this way. Uh, Collier, you can put it up. The lesson of the cultural mandate is that our sense of fulfillment depends on engaging in creative, constructive work. The ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation. But the ideal human existence is this, creative effort expended for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. Right? What she's saying is this, we're not just meant, we're not just created, uh, although I would love to spend a lot of time on the beach, right? A lot of you are vacationing this summer, and that sounds nice, but that's not what we were created for. We need that a little bit, and we weren't created also to just disappear into the wilderness and just pray all day and have no interaction with the world, right? Those are opposite of what God has created for. He says, what are we created for? Nancy says it this way, creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others, Right? And so today, Nehemiah is going to come back, and he's going to rebuild the walls. He's going to help rebuild the city. He's going to bring some order to the chaos um, that is Jerusalem. And the question before we even jump into the story, <laughs> for us, and I'm, I, I'm trying to make this really practical, right, is what are we here at Huntington First Baptist, or you individually and your family, you personally, what is it that God has called you to do? That's the question today. Because Nehemiah gets called to go and rebuild some walls. It's really not that glamorous. It's just, let's get some walls up, people. Right? That's his job. But he did it. What are we called to do? What, what is it that God has called us to do here in Huntington, Texas? Where, what chaos do we see around that we're called to bring some order to? What, what evil exists? What brokenness do we see around us that we need to step in and do something about? Uh, where are we multiplying are we doing what God has called us to do or are we just kind of let's just kind of rein it in let's just be us and keep it right here because we're going to see today the people in Jerusalem were not obedient to what God called them to do to multiply and to bring some order to the chaos so I don't want us to miss that right I don't want us to miss what has God called us to do that's the point today that I want us to think about um, so let's look at Nehemiah um, I, want, I want this to be on your minds as we, as we think about the life of Nehemiah and what he does. Um, so Nehemiah, he is going today uh, to use his position, his circumstances. Uh, he's really just an average dude. He's really not that special. He's not super spiritual. He's just a guy who loves the Lord and is trying to do what God tells him to do. And what he's going to do today is he's going to use his position and go, how can I benefit the kingdom of God? How can I do what God has called me to do? And what he realizes that, is that Jerusalem is not flourishing. They need walls. And he goes, you know what? I can do something about that. And so he's going to step into that and bring some order to the chaos so that they can multiply and fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord and the image of God. So these last three sermons in the Old Testament, um, Ezra last week, Nehemiah. I, by the way, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Ezra, and I don't know if I've ever heard one on Nehemiah. So I'm, I'm kind of like swinging blindly today. But, uh, and then next week, we're talking about Malachi, which I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Malachi either. But these three guys, to finish, they're, they're, they're really different. Ezra last week was, was this scribe, this priest that was all about 
uh, teaching the people the word of God because they had lost that. Uh, next week, Malachi is this prophet, and he is, he's a real spiritual guy, and he's going to point the people to, to looking forward, going, this is what God's going to do for you in the future. But today, Nehemiah is more like every one of us. He's just an average dude with kind of a slightly above average job, and he's going, how can I benefit the kingdom of God? That's what he's about today. Uh, if you look on your sheet, uh, they're on the end of the aisle. It'll give you a little context. Uh, the events of Nehemiah happen over about 20 years, uh, from 445 B.C. to about 423 B.C. And for some of you, you just, just fell asleep. Um, me too. But that date's going to matter here in a sec. Around 445 B.C., Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. That means he tastes and, and tries everything before the king eats it. That way, if it was poison, he dies, not the king, right? So he's kind of got an important job, but he's pretty expendable, right? Because if he gets poisoned, uh, we just get another cupbearer, right? Nehemiah's there, and he's going to be heartbroken over the news that the walls are torn down. He's going to use his influence and his circumstances to travel back 800 miles back to uh, Jerusalem. Now, here's why that date matters. 445 B.C., this is 90 years since people have come back from exile. Roughly 536, I don't, I don't have it in front of me. They go back, and it takes them 23 years to rebuild the temple, so 516, they finish the temple. The next thing they should have worked on is what? The walls, rebuilding the city, making it a place that is safe, secure, fortified, so then they can expand, right? It's been 70 years since that happened, and they have sat on their hands and done nothing. I, I don't know what happens in these 70 years. I don't know what their excuses are. I know they're, they're having to start over, and they're just kind of a ragtag group. They don't have resources. They don't have Solomon's wealth. They don't have anything, but they are not doing what God called them to do. For 70 years, they are being disobedient what God had clearly told them to do. And I, I, I'm just saying today, I don't, I don't have the answer as to why. We could come up with a lot of excuses why they didn't do what God called them to do. But for 70 years, they just kind of exist. They're not multiplying, and they're not bringing order to chaos. We know this. If you, There's different passages in Ezra and Nehemiah that talk about the number of people. And when they first come back, there's 50,000. You know how many there are to, in today in Nehemiah? Roughly 50,000. So for 90 years, they've just kept the status quo. They've not done what God has called them to do. They've just kind of existed. And they've, I'm sure they've lived a lot of life. They've eaten a lot of meals. They've done a lot of things. But they've not done the one, two things that God has called them to do, to multiply and to bring some order to the chaos. Think about it. 70 years. That's about how many years most of us will get to live, maybe, if we're lucky, right? Some of us have exceeded that. Some of us won't quite get there. But 70 years is a lifetime. And so, think about it. There were people that were born when the temple was finished, and they've lived their 70 years in total disobedience to God. They've wasted their life, just totally wasted it on who knows what, whatever their excuse was. What about us? We get 70 years, roughly, 80, 90 60, 50? Are we doing the thing that God has told us to do? It's the same as, as these people. 
Those two things, multiplying and bringing some order to the chaos, seeking the welfare of this city. It's very clear from Scripture that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to multiply. We're supposed to not necessarily, that doesn't just mean make babies, right? Because if you're not a woman, that's not really a possibility for you. So men are totally excluded, right? That's part of it. What does it mean for us Christians to multiply? It means we're called to go and make disciples of all the nations, right? And that starts right here, and it, and it expands uh, into Africa, and it expands to wherever God calls us, right? We're called to multiply, and then we're also called to be about the welfare of this place. We should care about the success and, and the, the, the goodness of Huntington, Texas, of Angelina County, of the families that we're connected to. We should want, even whether they're our enemies or not, because we've seen that, God says still pray for them, we should care about that here. We should be about uh, bringing some order to the chaos here and multiplying and seeing more and more disciples made. So that's the question today. What does God call us to do and are we doing it? Are we really doing it? Are we multiplying? Are we filling the earth with the image and the knowledge of God or are we just kind of busily sitting on our hands? Just spending our 70 years doing who knows what. Like, I don't, I don't want to be these people. I want to be like Nehemiah. I want to be like him because he hears this news and he is heartbroken over it. And he says, I'm doing something about this. I want God's name and his fame to be expanded. And so we need some order here. We need some walls so that then we can go from there. I want to be like Nehemiah. I don't want to be like these, these 50,000 who have basically sat on their hands and done nothing and wasted their, their brief breath on this earth. Let's jump in, Nehemiah 1. That was a long intro, Philip. Philip, Philip's my timer. He wants to know exactly how long I'm going to go, and he times me, and then he sees how close I get to the mark. So I gave him 38 minutes today, so we'll see. i got to go fast. Nehemiah 1. Let's read it. 1 through 11. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital of Babylon, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. It doesn't sound like news happens really quickly, but 70 years have passed, and he goes, oh, how's Jerusalem? Is it, is it expanding? Is it flourishing, right? And he goes, no, they don't even have walls. No, they're about the same as they've been. Verse 4 says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, and my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he's confessing their sin. Verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That your servants, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is 800 miles away. It might as well be forever. Might as well be another world. And he hears this news that the walls are torn down. The people are not doing what God called them to do. And he is heartbroken. He's heartbroken over their sin, over his sin, over their wasted life. And he, his response is to pray. His response is to pray that God would restore and rebuild and do what he promised to do, which was what? Establish his kingdom and fill the earth with the knowledge of him. Now, let's talk about the walls for a second. Why do the walls matter? Uh, I'm trying not to make a reference to the wall, the potential wall and all of that stuff in our country today, because I think it's a totally different issue. Um, We're not going to talk about that. But what do the walls represent for them? For them... Walls are not just this safety, uh, not just this uh, protection, although that's part of it, right? Uh, they, if there's not walls, then anybody can come in and destroy them. There's, that's part of it, but really the walls represent that the kingdom of God is established here, that the Lord, the God of heaven, this is his stronghold, and from there, his knowledge and his glory is going out. And so for the walls not to be there means that it's not ordered and it's not flourishing, right? Which is the opposite of what God had told them to do, to bring order to it, to fill the earth with his image. So the walls are not just about keeping people out. The walls represent strength and establishment that the kingdom of God exists here. And, it, and, it, and when the people not repairing them means that they're not doing what God had told them to do. So for the walls to be down was not, oh, they just want all these people to come in and destroy them. No, it was they're not being obedient to what God has said. They're not impacting the world that they live in because they don't even have any establishment. So when Nehemiah hears this, he's broken. He is totally heartbroken for their sin And he's heartbroken because the kingdom of darkness is ruling. Because the kingdom of light is not established and growing and expanding. He's heartbroken because they're not doing what God has called them to do. And so he prays. Um, Now, I don't know how you react. Uh, I'm a little cynical sometimes. And sometimes when I hear of heartbreak or I hear of brokenness in someone's life or, you know, systemic problems, I just go, man... Somebody else will deal with that. Eh, that's not really, eh, whatever. I got, I got things I'm worried about, right? But when Nehemiah hears of this heartbreak that's 800 miles away, not in his world at all, he is heartbroken over it, and he knows he has to do something about it. So he prays, and he actually prays for like four months before he ever talks to the king. He spends a lot of time in prayer. God, what am I called to do? What are you calling me to do? How am I supposed to use my life to help this? So he prays. He's trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. Look at Nehemiah 2, verse 1 through 8. I don't think he really has a plan because he actually stops halfway through this and, and prays again. And ah, God, I don't know what to say. But he just, God puts it before him. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So this news has affected him so, that, so much that you can see it on his face. Verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid because he knew he had to tell him. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what, what are you requesting? And this is where he stops and says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm sure he's praying for boldness. He's praying for clarity. In verse 5 he says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. All right, it makes no sense to ask of your enemy, the ruler, to go, Hey, I want to go rebuild this other kingdom over there. Can I go? You want to pay for it? That's what he's asking. Verse 6, And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So he doubles down, verse 7. He said, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river. That was the territory between where, where they were. That they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Just keep, he said yes once, like, let me just keep asking. Maybe he'll give me timber for this and this. and Oh, yeah, I need a house too, right? Doesn't make sense why the king says this, but it says this. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah is heartbroken, but he asked for permission, and he asked for provision from the king to go and rebuild the wall. Now, let's think about what's really happening here. He, Nehemiah hears of heartbreak, hears of brokenness, hears of disorder, and he looks at his life and goes, what am I supposed to do about this? God, well, God what are you telling me to do? And he spends four months praying about it, and he still doesn't really have an answer, but then he kind of gets forced into it. All of a sudden, God gives him boldness, and God moves the king's heart, and all of a sudden, he's going, hey, I need to go rebuild this. I need to go do what my God has told me to do. And the king says, yes. It makes no sense in our mind, but it's because of that last phrase, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is exactly what God wanted him to do. And when we step out in obedience and do what God calls us to do, many times God has already prepared in advance what we need. He's already taken care of the little things that so worried us and consumed us. But when we step out in faith and do what God tells us to do, God takes care of the details. And that's what he's doing here in Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah looks at his life and says, how can I use this to do what God has told me to do? How can I leverage this for the kingdom? So Nehemiah heads to Jerusalem from Susa. It's an 800-mile journey. He, he, he kind of looks around, and he is heartbroken again because he sees it with his eyes. It's one thing to hear about it from 800 miles, but he sees it, and he investigates it, and then one day he calls the people together, and he goes, look, he's going to motivate them. We have to do what God has told us to do. So let's look at it, Nehemiah 2, uh, verse 17. Verse 17. It says, then I said to them, these are the people, the 50,000, maybe just the leaders. 
It says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. He motivates them. He says, God is on our side. The, the conditions are favorable. Let's do this. Let's do what God has told us to do. Verse 19. But when the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He, he fires them up. He says, Look, we've been called to do this. Let's do it. The king's on our side. Let's do it. And even though there's some opposition starting to kind of bubble up from the outside, no, let's do this. Let's go. We know we're called to do this. We're called to bring some order to the chaos that is our walls. And so he does. In chapter 3, we're not going to read it, mostly because it has a lot of names, and you know how I struggle with that. So we're not going to read it, but you can read it and pronounce them in your head. You never mess up in your head. Uh, but what's interesting, there are a lot of names in there. And, and what's interesting is, is Nehemiah is not a story about uh, the leader, Right? It's, it's about Nehemiah, but really the story is about chapter 3. It's about all the men and the women and the daughters and the sons that rise up and build. It's, if you go and read it, uh, he, he names people. and He says, these people worked at the Watergate, and these people and their sons worked here. And he gives qualifications for some of these people. I'm, I just wrote them down. Uh, and notice, none of them say, Shemanite, the wall builder, built over here. Okay? Here's their qualifications. A high priest. Normal people, goldsmiths, perfumers. I don't know what perfumers know about building a wall, but they were doing it. Rulers, sons, daughters. It wasn't just sons, it was daughters too. Priests, they don't know anything about building a wall, I guarantee you. Brothers, temple servants, merchants, fathers, and many more. There's so many different qualifications, and I think something important for us to see here is that the work of God is not just about one person. It's not about Nehemiah. Nehemiah would have never been able to build this wall. It took every single person, perfumers and merchants and randos, right? Just anybody and everybody, anybody that could work, get up here. We are doing what God has called us to do, whether you're qualified or not. And so many times we think, you know what? My, my real specialty is right over here. This is my niche, and I just, I mean, God has made me for this. I'm not getting outside of that. And when we do that, we so limit the work that God wants to do among us, right? Yeah, God has given us unique things that we're really good at, but sometimes we got to step outside of that and build the wall, right? Sometimes we have to do things that we're not exactly gifted for or suited for because that's what the kingdom of God needs at that point, and that's what these people do. The other thing I think to notice from the naming of all these people is that Nehemiah is giving them credit. He's not saying this was about me. Right? And so if you, you find a leader, and it says me or my dad or whoever, and it's all about them, and it's all about their glory and their power, run. Right? Because it's not. The kingdom of God and the family of God is about each one of us and our, our individual contribution to all of us. Like, I can't build the wall. 
I can't do what God has called us to do. We can, though. And it takes every one of us with our unique perfumers and our goldsmiths and our teachers and our, our craftsmen and our stay-at-home moms and our youth and our elderly. It takes all of us, no matter what our gifting is. The rest of the story today is this, is about the opposition that Nehemiah faces. He's, he starts down this road and they have this great, let's do this, right? They're excited. They are pumped. Let's build this wall. And then reality sets in, right? Whoever Sanballat and Tobiah and there's some other guys, different rulers, Geshem, the Ashdodites, they are against them. They do not want them to succeed. And as soon as they step out, they face opposition. That's exactly true in our life. When we try to step out and do what God tells us to do, so many times we get immediate resistance. He's going to face a lot of different problems. He's going to face ridicule. He's going to be made fun of. You can't build this wall. Y'all got 50,000 people, no resources. Y'all are idiots, right? What are y'all doing? Ridicule. We face that. He's going to face wrath. He's going to be physically, and the 50,000 are going to be physically threatened, like with their life, so much that they have to strap a sword to their side as they're slapping cement on some rock, right? They are physically in danger. They're going to face discouragement from inside themselves to go, man, can we really do this? They're going to get down on themselves. They're going to doubt. There's going to be fear, fear that they're going to fail, fear that they're not going to survive this, fear that God's not going to be with them, all kinds of different fears. And there's also going to be internal strife. There's going to be things within their body that are trying to tear them apart, divide them, distract them. There's tons of opposition in the next few chapters. We're not going to look at it all. My 38 minutes is running up, Philip. But let's look at Nehemiah 4. Look at verse 7. It says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. They, they're going to go kill these people and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So he sets up different people to, to, to foil their plan and skip to verse 16. It says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Israel who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the building builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Look at verse 21. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. So what they're doing is the, this, this imagery, they've got a sword in one hand, and they've got a trowel in another. I know, I've never held a trowel, but it's the, it's the shovel kind of thing that masons use. Yeah? Trowel? Is that right? Yes? Somebody give me a nod. Yes. A trowel. Come on. I'm ignorant up here. And the trowel was used to spread the cement between the rocks and, and to do all kinds of different stuff. But they also had their sword, right? And this picture, uh, Charles Spurgeon actually had a, a newsletter that he called the sword and the trowel. Or the, is that right? Sword and the trowel, yeah. I don't know. Um, 
But it's this picture for us of our Christian life, right? And it's the same idea that we multiply and that we bring order to the chaos. Yes, we have the, the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. And we, we know that and we use it and we fight back the enemy with it. But this gathering right here is a small blip of our whole week. The trowel is our work, our, the places that we, the, we interact, the community that we're a part of, right? And we, we're meant to have both. They're not meant to stand in opposition to each other. No, they were both about the same purpose. Yes, we're called to multiply people, multiply, make disciples with the word, but we're also called to work, to bring order to this chaos, right? And so your work as a nurse or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or a student or whatever it is, it doesn't have to stand in opposition to the things of God. No, 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 you're called to use that to bless this. And this is called to bless that. Like They work together, the sword and the trowel. They face all kinds of inside opposition to Nehemiah 5. I'll just sum it up. Basically, they are taking money from each other, and they are putting, uh, they're charging interest, and they've taken their fields, and they've done all kinds of different stuff against God's law. And, and there's other inside opposition that they're not doing what God has called them to do inside themselves. They're not loving. They're, they're being divisive. And Nehemiah calls them out. Uh, there's a bunch of other stuff you can look in Nehemiah 13 about the inside opposition that they face. But that was just as dangerous as these men who were trying to destroy them from the outside. Inside opposition is sneakier, <laughs> more subtle, but it's just as dangerous. Now the problems and the difficulties that he faces are immense. But Nehemiah knows this is what God has called me to do, and he does it. And he gets the people to do it. It makes me think of Galatians 6, 9 that says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. He doesn't. Look at Nehemiah 6, verse 15 and 16. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. It took them 70 years of waiting to do a job that took 52 days. Verse 16, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You can see them building the walls already is affecting those outside of them. It's already uh, sending a message that the Lord has established his kingdom here, that the Lord is God, and the nations are afraid. It blows my mind that it took them 70 years to do something that took 52 days. And maybe I'm the same, right? Folding laundry, what takes 10 minutes, we will dread all week, right? Anybody with me? You do laundry and it stays there and it doesn't ever get put up. We dread that one thing that we need to do. And that's what they've done. They've waited 70 years. And some of them have wasted their whole life not doing what God had called them to do. So as we finish today, the question is this. From Nehemiah, what are we called to do? Nehemiah was really clear. Go rebuild the walls. Help establish the kingdom so they can multiply and fill the earth with the knowledge of God, the glory of God. What are we called to do here at, at Huntington First Baptist? What are you called to do where you work, <laughs> in the family that you are, in the friendship circles that you have? Where is there disorder? Where is there chaos? Where is there a lack of the knowledge of God? That's what you're called to. That's what we're called to. We're not called to be here and just 
build firmer walls so that no one can get in. That's not what walls are about. We are called to multiply, to make disciples of, of all of Huntington, Texas. That's our mission here. And we're called to bring some order to the chaos, to seek the welfare of Huntington, Texas, to seek the welfare of the families and the jobs and the careers and the places that we live. Just like Nehemiah, our, our situation is different than his. We're not probably going to be a part of building a physical wall, but we will be a part of building community, building friendships so that we can see the glory of God and the knowledge of God spread all throughout Huntington, Texas. I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come forward. We're going to have a time of response. Maybe you need to come and pray about God, just like Nehemiah. What, what is it that you're calling me to do? What am I supposed to be about? You've planted me here. And whether you view this place as the garden, this is perfect exactly where you want to be, or whether you view this place as Babylon, this is not where I want to be. This is the enemy's territory. Regardless, the command is the same. God is calling us to be about multiplying and bringing order to chaos. So maybe you just need to spend time praying. Maybe you need to come pray with me. I'll be up here. Um, maybe you just need to worship. Maybe you just need to sit. Um, but whatever you need to do, be like Nehemiah. Do it. Don't wait 70 years. Don't waste your life doing all kinds of other things. Let's stand and let me pray. God, I pray that you would give us boldness, give us courage, just like Nehemiah, to do what you've called us to do to be unashamed about it, even when we face opposition, even when things don't go our way, even when we get discouraged, may we be about making disciples and bringing order to the chaos, God. May we do what you've called us to do. Give us boldness and passion to go forward with that, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.